Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Newsroom Robots, the podcast where we explore the intersection of artificial intelligence and the news industry. I'm Nikita Roy, data scientist, media entrepreneur, and one of the many founders currently building their ventures at the Harvard Innovation Labs. On the Newsroom Robots, I'm excited to bring you insightful conversations with industry experts about how AI is impacting the way we do journalism. Today, I'm excited to kick off a two-part interview with Eli Trung. She's the Vice President of Product Strategy at the American Press Institute. Elite was previously the Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Washington Post, where she led the newsroom's R&D team to capture younger and more diverse audiences by creating projects driven by emerging technologies, including machine learning, artificial intelligence, 3D, and augmented reality. She's also worked at Vox Media as the Product Manager for Off-Platform Storytelling. Elite currently serves as the Board Secretary for the News Product Alliance and is on the Advisory Board for Democracy Day. In today's episode, we hear about Elite's experience working on Heliograph, the robot reporter from the Washington Post that came into existence in 2016. We talk about how she evolved the product during her time at the Post and also discuss how AI could potentially be used to help journalists when reporting on traumatic events. Welcome to Newsroom Robots. I'm so excited to learn from your experience about building AI products for media houses. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you today. So, Eli, you've had this exciting journey on the product side of the newsroom for quite a while, immersing yourself in the intersection of tech and journalism and AI way before it was cool. And now with generative AI coming to the mix and everything, you've built AI products over at the Washington Post, and now you're working at the American Press Institute. And so there's a lot to unpack today for our conversation in terms of what it's like building products with emerging tech, especially 
especially for big media houses. And before we get deeper into anything, I always like to hear about people's first experience doing something new. And so I'd like to start off right there by knowing what was your first AI product that you built and what was that whole experience like? Uh, Absolutely. You're right. I was working on it before it was cool and it was much more difficult to think of uh, use cases. So I do have a lot of um, old timer knowledge in that way. When I started at the Washington Post, it was 2018 and I was taking over a product called Heliograph. It was well known in the, I guess, the, the 2010s at that time where we've experimented with it for our sort of flagship election coverage. So Heliograph is basically a system that's built on top of all of our elections data coverage. And so we had data from the AP, we had it from a couple of different places that were really just live election data from all the different races going on across the United States. And the problem there was how do we reach folks with that data in use cases that it would be relevant? Right. So you would think of, okay, here are all of our Lexington's pages, our search pages, like is our search authority strong enough to be able to reach them in those areas? So Heliograph was a way to generate articles and then also social media posts of, hey, here's all the live election data going on. Um, And that's what it was in 2016. It really helped us scale our operations and what we were able to publish on election days. When I came in in 2018, what we wanted to use that data for was a little bit more focused than publishing all those different articles and social media posts. We found that sort of broadcasting all those things helped us learn the technology, but wasn't as effective because it wasn't written in a way that was incredibly engaging. It's really hard to do, especially in social media, as as anyone using like TweetDeck back in the day or managing social when you publish things at the same time will know. So what Heliograph did and what we built it in 2018 was to take that infrastructure on top of our elections engineering data sort of pipelines and everything like that to be able to to share national election updates as they were happening in our YouTube live in our YouTube live chat in general. So the moderator who would be working in our live show in general, which was on the entire election day in general would be able to pipe in and be able to contextualize the automatic updates of what was happening in the election. That was much more tailored and much more focused. It was much more engaging because it was not, here's every possible way we could use this lake of data to like blast at at folks who really like you get fatigue on big event days like that. You're really just looking for one piece of information And we decided to narrow it down there and just like automate that one line of data in a very specific place. And it helped drive engagement quite a lot in YouTube. So lots of lessons from that, too, because I had to fight against folks who were just like, why can't we just try to publish hundreds of articles again? Because that seemed successful in that way. But really, success metrics have to be very thoughtful in spaces like these when we're exploring merging technologies. Yeah, you've touched upon that product lifecycle journey kind of that you were undertaking in developing this. And I want to learn more about like, how did that process work? The challenges that came about when you were doing something AI related for the first time, were there any additional considerations that you had to take into? Yeah, I mean, when you're working with any emerging technologies, there's going to be some skepticism, depending from maybe your stakeholders, who are the folks who are in charge of approving your projects, or your colleagues who are going to be working with you on those kinds of projects or might have objections to it in general. With AI at the time, it wasn't as well understood, but the main face of AI was like replacing journalism, right? So that was still the the reputation that I was working with. 
and really stressing this is how we are using AI in this newsroom. We are using it to elevate and make it more discoverable, the content that we're all working on. We want to automate some of the things that you find really onerous as a journalist and try to do that for you. So you can work on more insightful work, things like that, especially beats like crime or sports that have, you couldn't cover all those different things, but maybe automation could help do that. And that was something that was really well understood the post when Jeremy and I were there. It's not everywhere, unfortunately. We keep seeing folks at different media houses and media organizations experiment with it with less transparency. And I really urge them to think about how to set a mission statement that explains to their audience, explains to the staff, and then keeps that trust and maintains that trust of here's how we're going to use this and not replace your jobs or necessarily anything like that. Because used wrongly, AI can be a shorthand for destroying that audience trust and your staff trust. But at that time, I think some of the challenges were really around trying to explain what we were trying to do, especially when we didn't know if it was going to work at first. So, you know, we're also learning about in an R&D lab like ours, the lead lab at the Washington Post, we had a hypothesis and we were going to create a prototype as quickly as we could, but we didn't know if it was completely possible all the time. So we had to ask for trust and faith in doing that. And luckily, we had built up a portfolio over years where we had enough quick wings. We publicized our experiments enough. And there was more incentive to work with us than not in that you would learn something more about your audience by working with us across any of the desks that most folks were interested in working with us and and wanted to find out something weird or crazy about the next emerging technology, whether that was 3D modeling or AI or ML in some way, or would basically just have some faith in us and would give us some time and to figure it out. So Heliograph was your version one prototype that you had created and built. How did you then go about with like developing and iterating upon the product to refine it? And when you left the Washington Post, what state was it at? Yes. So Heliograph was 1.0 was the one that had broadcasted all the hundreds of articles and social media posts. Heliograph 2.0 was the YouTube version that I worked on. The third version of Heliograph was called Claire. So that was really me being obsessed with house ads and podcasts and pushing our own sort of advertising and not necessarily giving the prime spots always to advertisers who might not have the best quality of podcast ads or something like that. And also just um, using geolocation that already exists for advertisers, but we don't think to do that as, you know, audio journalists or journalists in general. So uh, Claire was really a couple pieces and different parts of AI. So one was pretty straightforward. It was not AI at all. It was more using geolocating. And so when you hear like a podcast and you might get a local ad that's like, um, get a Jimmy John's Subway sandwich or whatever like that at this location near you. And you're like, oh, okay, that's weird. They know where I am, whatever. But it's pretty basic, like just general IP address tracking. And it is sort of helpful. What I wanted to do is to hook up the same, you know, data pipelines that we use for Heliograph that powered everything on the Washington Post site and the things that we had done before for YouTube to our political podcasts as well. So the top ad of the entire podcast before you even heard the host would be this flexible audio script that we created for different scenarios. And the 2020 election, if I ask you to think back on that, lasted about 13 days to get results from election day because of until afterwards into November, because of all the special, like the use cases in which we had to hand count ballots and things like that. We would never be in that position really again, or, you know, we had hoped at that time. 
So we wanted to have something that continued to update you on your local election results as that went on. And as your local election might have been wrapped up, it would push you to the national election, which we t- we knew would take much longer than any local election result. So we worked with the audio team to create a flexible sort of um, audio script that was less than 45 seconds long when read at a normal pace and would be able to in- pronounce everyone's, all the constituents' names correctly. That was very, very important to me as someone who has a name that is often butchered. It was very, very important to me, especially as the most diverse cast of folks who are running. Uh, For the first time, I wanted to make sure everything was pronounced correctly. We did several edits on that. And then we, the second part of it was building this AI voice. So this was the persona of a young woman in her 30s who was part of the audience that we want to attract, right? And so we gave her a voice. We built a voice with Microsoft to be able to voice all of these different geolocated election results at the top of the podcast every day that it was still going on for you. So um, her name was Claire. I wanted to name her Graham after Catherine Graham, but that was too, that was a line too far for Marty. He was like, can you just call her something else? I don't want to have to call up Catherine's family and explain it. But I thought it would have been incredibly cool. We made her her voice a little bit more pitch deeper. She could have been non-binary. She could have been a young woman. And it really, that was the audience that we were trying to reach. So there's a lot of strategic moves behind that one project where we took advantage of a system that's already set up for advertisers, but we used it as journalists. And it was it turned into a piece of branded content that was offered to folks who were very excited, for instance, spirits companies who want to do the same thing of like, hey, it's 70 degrees near you. It's, you know, like it's a great time for this particular drink or something like that. It was just, it's just using the technology that was already there in a way that it wasn't meant to be. And that can be a really good place for innovation, I think. So just to kind of put this into context and make it more familiar for our listeners, I'm guessing this is how like the most famous examples of like AP automating their like financial stories and like those generated templates. It's the same thing in text, but you put that into voice to have these auto-generated podcast scripts that could just come about. How is, was that how it was working? Yes, that's exactly how it worked. Yeah. And I'm really interested in hearing more about that whole ideation phase. You've spoken a lot about how you took in all of those considerations about making sure that you had the names correctly, how the voice would sound and attract uh, your listeners. How did you go about, first of all, actually ideating to what problem you would want to solve and then all of the different steps in terms of Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
small, small details while working with a large team of technologists? That's a good question. Let's see. The best ideas, I think, are often ones that have already been out there, but they didn't go anywhere in the past. So it, it never has to be a new idea. I often think of myself as I'm not the ideas person, but I have a special like skill somehow in making sure that this can be executed and brought to reality in some way. I think that's kind of all you need because you can have a million fantastic ideas and they just kind of sit in the backlog. This was an idea that Allison Michaels had several years ago. So she is now, I believe, the deputy audio director at The Washington Post. She used to oversee all the politics programming, probably still does. And she really wanted to, as soon as she saw Heliograph, she's like, we should do that in audio, you know, years before when I joined. Um, and she was just like, that's that's such a huge project. I don't know how we would do that, but I like that. I would work with whoever wants to actually make that a reality. And I was sort of thinking about different ideas, like what this is not really a problem that we had. It was more an opportunity, trying to find a useful opportunity for us to learn something about how to scale audio journalism. The Post had just invested in a gigantic daily podcast team and podcasting department that was very new at the time that I joined. So what was an opportunity to showcase our audio journalism and emerging technology at the same time? And that's how I learned to work with advertising quite a bit, too. So it was really trying to connect it to, you know, Allison, I think there is a system that can automate a lot of this stuff for us. It's hacking like the ad tech platform that we use for um, podcast ads, which you normally don't. The only time you hear from them is when you have a complaint about like, this ad sounds terrible, but you don't know on the other side, there's geolocation built into all of that stuff. If the advertisers decide to use it or not, we could tap into that as an advertiser slash person using that platform, right? Except it's editorial. So it really is just brainstorming with smart people, people who have more subject matter expertise than you. I'm, I'm a generalist by nature, and I think that helps me see and ask questions that might seem very basic, but helps people think about things that they've, you know, can help people connect the dots in new ways and subject matter like that they're really entrenched in and may not be able to see in new ways, for instance. So I think that's where really good projects start. And I mean, it's one thing to kind of develop that whole product, but then the other challenge altogether is really getting them adopted into the newsroom. And you've touched on it a bit slightly, but I want to hear more about when you were, when you're building all of these different products, how were newsrooms engaging with it and your different teams? And how did you get your teams to adopt this product? So AI is interesting in that it doesn't always have to be a tool that you have to convince someone to use. That becomes very difficult with other technologies and other tools that you're building because you have to convince like a, a number of folks to adopt who are time strapped already, who don't have time to produce the things that they need to on a daily basis to use this new tool because you need to learn about it to eventually help them with a workflow task that so that's like you're finding a solution, but for the wrong problems to solve, right? And that's I think that comes from my product background, which is like, let me find something that is either adjacent to that. Like I can show like a quick win would be using AI in a way that either helps someone with a workflow that they are so bogged down in that they feel like they cannot do good work or step away from their computer in fear of missing some piece of data or something like that. And they could use an editorial assistant, perhaps powered by AI or set up with different data pipelines to be able to understand things, but not constantly be on. Or 
be able to be on the audience side of it and be able to, for instance, use AI or machine learning to work at a paywall or registration wall strategy, which is something that I think the Times does really well and FT did really well. And take that out of folks' hands of trying to like do every single little scenario there and learn as it goes along or content discovery. I think that's something we should talk more about in, in you know, later in the podcast, which is a huge, that's something that no single person should be in charge of. And it's something that has so many implications of we're sitting on years and years and perhaps decades of content. And how can we surface that? A lot of that is still usable and still relevant. History repeats itself. How can we connect those things? How can we use older images and photos and videos that we've taken that we don't even know where any of that stuff is? And uh, and take lessons from under other industries that are doing that quite well. With staffers, it's easier to solve the problems that are when you understand, and I talked about this at Media Party, when you understand the the hardest problems to solve or like the biggest annoyances and the biggest um, obstacles for folks in like high priority beats or areas, like can I free up my crime reporter from in uh, to have a couple more breaks a day instead of staring intently at their email, hoping to not miss something and break the news right away from the different police precincts? Maybe not now because none of that data is structured. It's like it comes from a lot of unofficial sources. But someday, can like we might be able to do something like that in an open source project. Can we do that for sports? Yes. All that data is completely the same sort of format. And that's really, really easy to do. Can we find an optical character recognition-based tool for our investigative reporters to dump a bunch of legal documents in and then be able to search, especially if there's handwritten notes and things like that, that are purposely like obfuscated by the folks who are like, I will technically, legally, I'm I'm bound to like the Mueller report, for instance, which we did to be able to publish this, but I don't have to make it easy for you to glean insights. Yes, we can. We can find. And we did. We worked with Google's pinpoint tool to be able to search those documents and break news really quickly because we were able to scan through all those documents. All of that is AI. You know, Otter Otter is something that's also one of, one of the things I champion because most reporters understand that. The efficiency of having someone, something just take notes, a transcript of your conversation, that's easy to understand. And that's all in the same category of AI. I know we were just talking before we hit record about how AI is becoming this big marketing buzzword more like, but we have all of these different subsets of like machine learning, computer vision, generative AI. And you were just briefly telling me about this computer vision product idea that you'd begun working on. I'd love to delve deeper into that. What got you into thinking about like more from the automation sides than looking into computer vision AI and keeping up with this emerging tech? I think even generative AI is very simple. Like AI cannot really, any of these emerging technologies, as it has to do with like content industries like journalism and news, is not smart enough to be able to produce sophisticated content like any average reporter could anywhere, right? But the real trick of it is like if there's like simple tasks that you can automate or be able to look out for and you could tell it specifically enough without it generating a ton of errors, then it does that task very, very well. Even asking generative AI or ChatGPT to take the bar exam, all of that is structured data. It's pulling on guides from the internet and all that study stuff. Why wouldn't it do well? You know, and that's not something that we work that way. So computer vision at the time, it was, I think, 2019 when I started to look at this. And in 2020, when we really started, computer vision is really just chat GPT for visuals in this way. It's like you're supposed to look for maybe that's, you know, that's just a simple analogy, but really what the algorithm is, is like, can I 
I'm looking for something in particular. So for instance, um, traffic cameras are really good at this. They're, they're, they operate sometimes on computer vision of like, I'm looking for cars that run the red light when the red light is on. And so I will issue like a ticket to this person or whatever. And here's a data that I'm looking for. It's a license plate. It's this model of car or something like that. We were trying to find use cases for this and I stumbled upon a really good one. And we started to formulate the idea for this product that was never launched, but I would still love to work on this in some point or would love to hear from folks who would like to work on this, where we had a project, of course, in the summer of 2020, when George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. The week following, we reconstructed um, a time, a visual timeline of social media videos that really portrayed, hey, here's what's happening on the ground in the Twin Cities. Um, here's what the protests look like. And even the coverage of that from the post even, and but everywhere else was really suggesting that riots were happening at that time and all this violence was happening. And our, our visual investigation really showed that violence was way more instigated when police arrived and instigated that themselves. So it wasn't citizens themselves or people in Minneapolis. Um, it was really around that. So it helped clarify, you know, our reporter who helped us on that project and reconstructed 250 social media videos from the ground in Minneapolis following George Floyd's murder for that week following. She was even herself like, this clarifies a lot of stuff to seeing this laid out like this, right? So just um, like, here's what happened, a reconstruction of like what happened across these neighborhoods in Minneapolis. And with computer vision, what I really wanted to do after that project was build a tool that where we told an algorithm to help us verify locations a little bit better. That was really difficult to be able to map to these, for instance, like four locations or six locations or whatever it might have been across the city by viewing landmarks in the backgrounds of those videos and being able to geolocate that in that way and be able to verify that that happened and there was no synthetic material being put in. And so we had to view those videos over and over again and manually sort of add them in this visual timeline. It caused a lot of harm and trauma in, uh, for me, the visual journalists I worked with who had to verify those hundreds of videos. It was to the benefit of our audience to help understand that. But you know, in the future, if I could have used a tool that maybe we built or someone else built that helped us verify the locations of those places and helped us, you know, and just flagged some certain ones for edit for us, for us to verify, it would have reduced harm for my staff and for me to be able to see uh, such violent videos over and over again for many other visual journalists. For instance, we had, unfortunately, the insurrection right after that, the January 6th insurrection, where we had to do similar things with the visual forensics team, reconstruct what happened. And that's incredibly traumatic. So if we could have had a tool like that, if we could have had the jump on that, we didn't have the technical resources that we needed at that time because it's so different than what we had been building. But I would love to still pursue something like that. I think there's a lot of potential now as that kind of AI technology is also maturing. Yeah, I think that's a really good use case of using AI to do the work that can actually be more harmful for journalists as humans just having to see something so traumatizing and constructing it. And that's one way we can use AI to really help us. How do you see our situation right now in the current technological landscape to help support you in building such a product right now? Well, at the time, I think there that could have been incredibly helpful for something like an AWS partner, for instance, because you're trying to put in like hundreds of documents or hundreds of videos or something like that. I would love to hear from listeners also if you've heard of anything like that. It possibly could exist and I'm not aware of it. I think newsrooms really 
could use something like this. Anyone who has has to verify what happened um, or work with traumatic videos or reconstruct anything in that way, which is becoming more popular at some of the larger national newsrooms because it's such an immersive way to to show what happened. It's like undeniable. You can write about something and some people won't trust it. If you show what actually happened when you went in that hallway in the insurrection, then folks, it hits you at a much deeper level of like, wow, this I can see how all this stuff played out. Now this helps me have a fundamental understanding of every piece of coverage that follows, right? So that's why that kind of journalism is so important. And I would love to hear from folks who would love to either sponsor or like a project like this or know of folks working on something like this. I think it should really exist. That was Eli Trunk, the vice president of product strategy at the American Press Institute. Join us tomorrow to learn more about what Eli's currently working on and hear her views on where she sees generative AI having the biggest potential for newsrooms. This podcast is made possible thanks to the Harvard Innovation Lab's Spark Grant. I'm Nikita Roy, and this is Newsroom Robots.